Good morning. What a great day to get together and open the scriptures and thank God for what he's done and rejoice in our salvation and teach, preach, and learn the word of God as we look into God's powerful scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit. That'll be our topic. I'll read the text on the next slide and then pray and we'll see then what God said in this one verse that has so much application. So it's 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I'm reading from the ESV, and I'll read the whole verse. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against Another. That's the entire verse. We'll have several uh, slides that cover concepts within this verse. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness and mercy. Thank you that you've given us a hunger to know what you've said, to, to know you and love you and to care for one another. Give us wisdom and humility and understanding as we know We're here for a reason, to bring honor and glory to you through preaching upon your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's look at the first part of 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. And have your Bibles ready, because we're going to look at what these things are from previous passages in short form, so we know the topic. Paul says this, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Brothers means literally all Christian saints, therefore brothers and sisters or brothers would be the same idea. It's to all, not just men. These things likely refers to the analogies and images from 3.5 to 4.5. So what I've done, all of these we've preached on as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, but I want to give you a synopsis of some of the things that's already been said so that we know what he's talking about. In 3.5 through 7, what we learned was that Paul and Apollos are fellow workers with different roles. Fellow workers with different roles. But God gives the growth. Remember the big theme. What was the problem? Some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ, as if Christ were just part of the church, not the head of it. And so there were problems. Paul heard this from Chloe's people, and he's addressing it. So here in this context, we're looking at what is happening for the benefit of the church. What applies to the church at Corinth applies to various congregations that would arise throughout church history because the same problems always show up, factions and so on. Now, 3, 5 through 7, fellow workers with different roles. 3, 8 through 9, Paul and Apollos are diakonoi, Servants laboring in God's field. So there's an analogy. They're servants. 
You see, religious consumers like to identify with some person who they think may be really great and therefore exclude the whole of what God has given to the church. Only some gifts or some preachers or some persons. That's not right. Paul and Apollos, though Paul's role is different, he's a valid apostle. They're servants laboring in God's field. Three, 10 through 11. God's building. God's building. We've preached on that. There's a building being built. The foundation is Jesus Christ. And Paul is a master builder who laid the foundation through preaching Christ crucified. Now, there's more to it than that. We've covered it in Ephesians, but the foundation is already laid. So another analogy is their foundation, the apostles and prophets, according to Ephesians, Christ the cornerstone. In this case, the, the foundation is Christ because he gave the apostles and prophets. The building goes on brick by brick, if you want another analogy, as the gospel is preached and people are converted and they trust in Christ, they're being built together into a building and the Holy Spirit has given gifts and all are important and necessary in that building. In verse 3, 12 through 15, all must take care how they build when will the test come? In the future day when the Lord comes. Okay? We don't want to pass judgment before the time. The future day will reveal the quality of the work. That was the section about the wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. There's various rewards. 3 of uh, 16 through 17. The church is God's temple. The church is God's sanctuary. God, through the God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells all believers, and therefore we must not ever destroy the temple of God by treating fellow believers wrongly, shaming those whom God has honored with the gift of salvation. In 3, 18 through 20, we need to avoid self-delusion, which comes from worldly wisdom. We cannot please God in the world at the same time. Did you know that? It's pretty obvious if we just look at the news that the world is going some different direction than what's true and right and godly. Furthermore, as we continue to learn here from these things that are applied in 321 through 23, do not boast in human leaders. Frankly, church history is a history of boasting in factions, human leaders, and sometimes organizations are called church that have nothing to do whatsoever with Christ, the gospel, or the word of God. In 4, 1 through 2, ministers are managers, household managers, and each one will be given give account to God. And Paul said they're managers of the mysteries of God. How can you manage a mystery? Preach a sermon about that. This is a mystery that we would not know had God not chosen to reveal it. It's not mysteries like the pagans, some secret that some uh, guru figured out by some spiritual intuition. This is what God has revealed, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
the, the way to salvation is through the crucified Jewish Messiah. And then last time I preached, for three through five, do not judge before the time. This, in fact, is so important that it describes what happens continually throughout the 2,000 years since the ascension of Christ during the church age. Judging before the time. What is that? Judging who's better, who's best, who's greatest, who has better things going for them, whose group is the real pure church, and things that we can't know until the Lord returns. We can know the terms of the gospel. We can know what's revealed. We can know what are the implications of the blood atonement, Christ crucified, the things we've already seen. But we can't know who's the greatest. Sometime read through Luke and look out how many times they start arguing who's the greatest when they should be in awe of Christ. There's a lot of discussions about who's the greatest. I'll talk about that next week. And so these things then are applied to Paul and Apollos for your benefit. What benefits the church is not necessarily popular, in fact, rarely, but is always necessary. What is popular does not prove what is valid. What the religious consumers love and look for is not what is necessarily and usually not what will be commended when the Lord returns. Now, the next two sections include two purpose clauses. Hina in the Greek is often translated in order that when it begins a purpose clause. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. This will explain it. So there's two purpose clauses beginning with that or in order that that will give us why this is important. So we'll go to the next slide, 1 Corinthians 4, 6b. Here's Hina, that. What? You may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now, scholars have debated the meaning of this in this context. What is written? What's he talking about? Some previous letter, something that we don't have or or we are not privy to. But the consensus, and I believe this is what is meant, is that it's either previously cited scripture here or scripture. And that, we know, is confirmed elsewhere. Paul had cited various passages and will continue to do so. Now, I did a deeper search on this. There's a good reason to search the scriptures. We've never had better tools to do so. And maybe at some point it was a very difficult thing because not everyone even had the manuscripts or the ability. But now we can. What excuse do we have today to not search the scriptures when just about everyone at least has a strong concordance? Most have ways to do so in the computer. There's some tools. So I have a way of searching every time this particular uh, verb 
has been written is used in this exact way in the New Testament. And doing that search revealed that it's found 67 times in the entire New Testament. It is written. Exactly perfect passive indicative third person singular. Eric said he was a nerd this morning, so I guess this is nerd day. But um, when it comes to knowing the Bible, it's not a bad thing to be a nerd because we're not here to please the world. So the same exact expression in the same form found 67 times in the New Testament Greek Bible. Nearly every one is about Scripture. Sometimes allusions to Scripture, but generally direct citations. It's very prominent in the book of Matthew. Very specific things happen in order that it might be fulfilled what is written, what has been written, and then things that God did. Did you know that when prophecy is fulfilled, it's generally, in fact, usually or almost every time other than a few exceptions, more literal than people would have expected. Out of Egypt I called my son, that Jesus would be raised on the third day, that he'd be Nazareth, Bethlehem, the things that happened. Matthew lays out again and again, this happened because the scripture cannot be broken. God cannot lie. When God gives a prophecy, he keeps it because he has the power to know and do what he said he would. Now, in this context, that you do not go beyond what is written, it it refers either to what already has been cited, but more likely what has been given once for all in the Bible. Now, if we narrow down the search to Paul's epistles, by the way, a couple exceptions I found were in the Revelation where it talks about names written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. It's a little different uh, concept there, but out of the 67, most are directly about Scripture. In Paul's epistles, this verb is used in this form 31 times, including right here. And all either directly refer to a passage or, in a couple cases, something known from Scripture a clear application of Scripture that has been written. So when the Bible says it has been written, it's speaking about what God has said in Scripture. Now I'm going to make a statement about that. God does not bind us to human opinions, worldly wisdom, or the sensibilities of religious consumers. Neither does God bind us to error or false teaching by anyone who may arise in church history and make various claims in Christ's name, which are not compatible with the scripture. If you, I've studied church history a lot. In fact, it was immediately an interest of mine when I was converted and switched from chemical engineering to Bible college. I took a summer class on historical theology, start studying church history. And it shocked me when I first started studying it, how strange it got and how quickly it got strange. As you read about what's happened through the centuries and, yes, millennia, it's mostly a history of error, confusion, abuse, harm, 
with a remnant who do believe the gospel. And what humans concoct are, are generally the same thing. Hierarchies with powerful people and structures which are self-perpetuating that will say, you do what we say and be part of us or you're lost. But the Lord says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The rest for our souls, according to Hebrews, is found in Christ. Rest is from our works is found with Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to lost sinners who believe the gospel. Those ones have found rest that goes on for eternity. And in that context, the religious leaders had tied up heavy loads, laid them on people's shoulders, and wouldn't lift their own finger to do their own rules. You do this, you do that, you jump through this hoop. That's what religion does. Jesus said, I will give you rest. And that is the universal call of the gospel. So God has spoken, and what he has spoken is for our good always. Later, I'll refer to the Old Testament where Moses said that. What God said is for our good always. How many of you know that if you trust God and believe God and serve him by his grace, that's for your benefit? Paul said we've applied these things to ourselves, that is Paul and Apollos, for your benefit. In the Bible, the leaders don't claim some status that gives them exemption from what is written and then throw other stuff on the church. For church history is filled with human lawgivers who don't speak for God. Claims of ecstatic whatever. In fact, I recently restudied a bunch of things I wrote because I was interviewed about it. And it's amazing how many people have visited heaven in the last 300 years. And the thing that always shocked me about that is that in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had such an experience, and what he saw, he said, was not lawful for men to utter. He wouldn't say. But why? I'll talk about that next week. Because the danger that will destroy the work of God in a church is usually the same thing. In fact, you can say it's always the same thing. Pride. Pride. That'll be next week's sermon when we get to verse 7. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Like you you got it for for your own self. So what God has, it offends the lost. It offends religious consumers. Christ crucified. But what he gives is the gift of God. And it's for those who trust him and believe him. And we can't have... Uh, uh, how would you say it? Go around the neighborhood and poll people and say, what would you want if you're going to be religious? No, we declare the truth of the gospel. Let's go to the third part of this verse, and it talks about puffed up. That'll get us segue into next week's sermon about uh, boasting being forbidden. 1 Corinthians 4, 6c, that none of you may be puffed up 
in favor of one against another. We're still on the same topic. You go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 1. What did Paul hear from Chloe's people? I hear you're saying, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Peter. And then there were obviously others. They were going into factions based on the idea that some had something the others didn't. I think I'll choose this. We don't get to choose who we're willing to fellowship with when it comes to those who love Christ and confess the gospel. The universal call still stands. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And what a shame that it's been like that throughout church history. And that doesn't mean we create some one church that will unify everybody. The unity is spiritual. Those who are born of God, if you meet someone somewhere, anywhere, and they know Christ, immediately you have a connection, even though you know nothing else about them. I know that. I, I recognize that. And I've experienced it many times. Sometimes you meet someone in the store and they know Christ. That's what we have. Now, that none of you may be puffed up. The word puffed up here, pusiao, is used seven times in the New Testament, all by Paul, by the way, six in 1 Corinthians, and then one time in Colossians 2, verse 18. Why would they be puffed up? Because they have factions. Why do they have factions? Because they had unbiblical criteria for what is spiritual or what should be honored in the church. This most egregiously shows up at the Lord's table. And next week we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I'll make an application to that again, although we've looked at it a lot of times. But what... um, I've studied the last couple of weeks because of an interview that was, I was asked to do was um, quite the amazing experience of going back to many articles and research things that I've done. And this has just always been there. Do you know that there are people that claim that only some elite Christians will be part of the marriage supper of the lamb and the rest are the have nots that kind of, never get to be there, but they're sort of Christian. I ran across that in my research. That's exactly what Paul rebuked in 1 Corinthians 11. Do this remembrance to me. That's for next week. So puffed up means inflated. Maybe your Bible says that. Puffed up, arrogant, inflated. Um, There's a lot of popular movie stars and athletes that are called inflated, or full full of their own ego. What does inflation in that sense do to people? Many times it's a really bad thing, harm. I'm important, other people aren't, and they get trampled under the foot of the would-be geniuses. But if there's anything the gospel is designed to do, Through the crucified Jewish Messiah, a scandal to the Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God, is to show us we need Christ. We are lost. One destiny all humans had 
without Christ was we're headed toward judgment, the eternal lost. One gift that God's given for sure to all who believe is the gift of eternal life. And membership in that building that God is building on the one foundation. I've cited fewer scholars lately, but this one is so good I have to share it with you. It's someone by the name of Paul Gardner, whose commentary is fairly recent. So I will cite this. He says this on on the passage at hand. At the end of the day, they must follow Scripture in their approach to status and belonging and what is spiritual and so on, says Gardner. If they do this, then the immediate problem, there are others Paul will deal with later, parenthetically, will be resolved. Hence, we have the second but ultimately subsidiary purpose clause. Notice another hina, that. That's my comment. Back to Gardner, that they should not be puffed up. It is precisely their going beyond Scripture, says Gardner, that is going further than Scripture says that has led to the divisions. They are going further than Scripture when they insist that the grace gifts of the Spirit reveal status and authenticate Christian maturity. They are going further than Scripture and judging leaders with a judgment that belongs to the Lord alone. And that's the end of the quote. I fully agree with that. That is the story of church history. And eventually it leads to ruin. It's always led to ruin at some point. It's led to banishing the gospel from churches. It's led to creating uh, veritable businesses out of mega religions that have absconded with people's, not just their money, but their hopes and dreams. And it's not something that we want to see. So of the six uses of this word puffed up, Pusiao in 1 Corinthians, this is one, and it'll come up again. I'll point it out. 418, 419, 5281, 134. You should know that one. What's in 1 Corinthians 13? It's the love chapter. Love doesn't puff up, it builds up. Love is concerned about the well being of everyone whoever they may be, that God has put in his church, even if they don't have anything it appears to us to offer. Everybody does. Should ever be that one member says to the other, I have no need of you. You sit over here. And that is illustrated in the book of Luke. When Jesus goes to dine at a fancy place of dining with the status brokers of the age, the leaders, the authorities, and who comes in uninvited? An immoral woman weeping at his feet. What an amazing parable. It's not our business to tell God he can only save people that we approve of. The universal call is valid. 
Now, the other one in Colossians 2.18, I'll leave aside for now. But it does warn about being puffed up, puffed up, inflated without reason, by sensual spirituality. I've written about that. Ask about it sometime in Sunday school if it comes up. I've written a couple of articles about this. There was a sensual asceticism and joining the angelic choir that Paul was warning about in Colossians 2.18 that led to being puffed up. That is why in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wouldn't tell what it was he saw in heaven, and he had a thorn in the flesh as it was. And nowadays, everybody that claims that experience writes a book and sells a lot of them. Somehow the rules changed. There are those even greater than Paul because they write a book about their visit to heaven. So it says here that we would be disqualified. That's what it says in Colossians, but we're not going to go there right now. I want to talk about Scripture, and then next week we'll talk about the danger of pride. Let me say this. I hope you come back next week. The one thing that will destroy people who have come to the Lord, that's Satan's attack that's universal, is pride. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Has God said? Why listen to what God said? He's keeping you from something you need. Do you know that if you trust God, he's not keeping you from what you need. Satan is offering something that will destroy you. You'll be like God. You won't die. You don't have to listen to God. There's something beneficial. Talk about that next week. Pride is what lures people to destruction. But when we humble ourselves and realize that but by the grace of God, I would be as bad as anybody else, and I was. So here's a couple of apps and implications. What God has spoken in Scripture is for our eternal benefit. We do not need new revelations. We need to stay within the boundaries of Scripture. Secondly, pride will always harm believers. Staying within Scripture alone mitigates the danger. It doesn't go away till the resurrection. It's always lurking there. But the Scriptures will cause us to say, Oh, Lord, help me. I need you. It's not wrong to admit that God is a gracious and merciful God who sent the Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal God, to save sinners. So let's look at some passages that teach the work of God to give us boundaries for our own good within Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 20, 21 is the first point. I'll start reading before that. The Scriptures will help us. In fact, in Hebrews, it says God has spoken. One time in Hebrews, it says, as the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's quoting Scripture. The Holy Spirit has inspired the Scriptures and speaks to us through the Scriptures. 2 Peter 1, I'll start reading with verse 17, and then we'll get to the one that's on the slide. 2 Peter 1.17, it's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. 
For when he, that is Christ, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Quote, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then verse 18, Peter says this. He was there. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. One of the necessary requirements for an apostle is to have seen the resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ, and be appointed by him. They saw this, he appointed them, and he ascended to heaven. And then, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Paul as one born out of time. So, uh, there was an objective event validated by God himself on the holy mountain, identifying the Messiah as the beloved son, Jesus Christ, in that context. And then it says in verse 19, so we've had the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now to the passage on the slide. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, there's discussion about the meaning of interpretation in this context, but we can see in the context they saw the majesty. They saw what God said and did. And let me give you the simple version about the inspiration of Scripture and how it applies to us. The author determines the meaning, not the reader. In Peter's case, they had God himself affirm that this was what the Scripture was pointing to, the incarnation, Messiah, a preview of glory that will is yet to come. And it's really very amazing when you see it in Luke-Acts. They were with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, speaking with him about his literal, it says in the Greek, exodus, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then right after that, they're arguing who's the greatest. Is that, do you get the idea that arguing who's the greatest is a bad idea? It's probably the favorite topic of religious folks through the centuries. But he rebuked them for doing that. I hope to deal with that more next time. But as a matter of fact, he was going to be rejected in Jerusalem. And then his ascension is an ascension all the way up into heaven after the resurrection. He raised at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1. So the Holy, the men who wrote Scripture are moved by the Holy Spirit and spoke from God. The author determines the meaning. That's not hard to understand, but what happens in church history is because we would hold a high view of Scripture, which we should. The Bible is the inspired, authoritative Word of God. Some, therefore, imply that because the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture, 
History confirms that the Bible doesn't lie. Some told me that they were out at that, that uh, place, that the ark that was built by... Uh, several people came all excited about that. What happened in history really did happen. But some of them thought, well, because the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what some inspiration coming to me tells me that it means. I was just interviewed about that. There are those who say uh, Christ can't come back until there's a perfected virgin bride, uh, Elijah company, many-membered man-child, new breed of man. It's unbelievable, the claims. How do they know that? Because they find scriptures and shoehorn them into that. No. What is inspired is what God said. What he said is true. And the author determines the meaning, not the reader. That is so primary. You can't even have human business or family discussion or letters sent to pay bills or anything if the reader determines the meaning. Well, why would I say that? Well, let's just go back to what we know God wrote with his finger on stones on Sinai. The ten words. You shall not steal. Who determines the meaning? God. Now, the postmodern reader says, you shall not steal. Unless you're stealing from somebody who has more than you do and you need it worse. That is not a valid interpretation. That's where the attack against the authority of Scripture comes. It doesn't mean what it says. The reader is inspired subjectively to determine what Scripture they'll listen to or what it actually means. No, the author determines this interpretation was what God did. Peter was an eyewitness. Now, Dr. Schreiner says this. When Jesus comes... We will not need the prophetic word to shine in a dark place, this sinful world. Then our hearts will be enlightened by the morning star himself, and that to which prophecy points will have arrived. It is not incompatible to speak of an eschatological event and its interior impact. In other words, the impact on us is real if we believe. The event happened in real time and space. The Roman soldiers knew as well as anybody that Jesus was raised from the dead. Have you read that? Eric will get there if history goes on long enough in Matthew. But what are the Roman soldiers? They knew he was raised. What did they do? You know, I think we'd rather have money. Would pay us and we'll lie about it. The disciples told the body. They knew it wasn't true. The disciples weren't sure the significance of what happened on the road to Emmaus. What did they say when Jesus was explaining all the things about himself from the scriptures? Although, boy, I know a lot of people wish they were on that trip. But guess what, saints? We will be with him. We will have eternity for him to reveal the glory and the glories of Messianic salvation. But what did they say? Didn't our hearts burn within us when we heard him speaking of all these things? From Scripture. 
the one who inspired the scripture, who sent us to preach the gospel, spoke to people. Now, the scripture means what it says, and it's inspired by God. And I'll, I'll cite this verse from the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy 6.24. Moses, in his sermon in Deuteronomy, says this, So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statues to fear the Lord our God for our good always and our for survival as it is today. Do you believe that what God has said and what God has done is for your benefit if you trust Christ and believe the gospel? Will God inspire something that's going to harm us if we believe it properly? No. It's for your benefit always. Do you really think that while Moses was on Sinai and the cloud of glory came down, by the way, transfiguration is an allusion back to Sinai, and he had to be hid in the cleft of the rock, what happened down below? Oh, they made a golden calf. Look at, look at this. Here's the God that took you out of, out of Egypt. They were there. How did he get out of Egypt? By the blood of the first, the, of, that was a substitutionary sacrifice on their door seals. They believed. They believed what God said. God brought them out. There's not one person who believed that calf actually brought them out. So why did they build it? Because we can control this calf. Moses is up there, cloud and glory. It's kind of scary. Maybe there's going to be judgment, but the calf. So they have a big dance, and they have the calf. And then there was the anger of Moses when he saw what was going on, and they had to grind it up and put it in their water, if I remember right. I think that's what happened. So do we want a God who's domesticated that we can control and tell him what he can and can't do? Or do we want a God who says that, um, I can't do what I want because I'm lacking, but if you cooperate, then maybe things will get done. No, the God of the Bible gives promises. He's powerful. He acts, and he delivers a people, and he gives them forgiveness of sins and uses them as we go through church history. So that's for our good. When a lot of really damaging things happened at one point in history, um, earlier in my life, in our life, I didn't know what else to do because one thing after another had come through town and people were left hurting and wounded. Well, we thought that was the move of God, but it failed. This one, that didn't work out. This one, that didn't work out. The only thing left to do, to my shame, because I had teachers that told me to do this, and I didn't listen, teach the Bible. Because if I work and study hard and understand it, and humble myself before the scripture, God cannot lie. And I won't have to later say, I apologize. I shouldn't have been teaching the Bible. I should have been looking for something better. No, there's nothing better than the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to Timothy. All scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
Now, if we think about Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians that we're studying, what was the issue? They preferred human wisdom to Christ crucified. Let me give you something in context. The great thing about the gospel is the eloquence or the presence of the speaker may create a bigger audience or a smaller one, but even the most uh, halting uh, speaker with the true gospel, God will use to save the lost. It doesn't depend on what we look like. Now, let me, this, again, I thought, I got up this morning, I was thinking about this verse, so I printed it out. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, let me read this. And Paul describes how he came to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. If you want to jot it down, I'll read it. And when I came to you, brethren, Paul said, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the message that saves. It's also the message that offends. So this doesn't mean Paul didn't have the whole counsel of God. He can read Romans or his epistles and see that he did. But the message he brought to Corinth was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, for I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. What's the importance of that? Verse 5, so that, purpose clause, your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And the power of God is so great that an audience inclined to be offended by everything Paul preached, an audience inclined to see it as moronic foolishness. Maria is where we get our word moron. Foolishness. The Greeks hated what he had to say. The Jews were offended by what he had to say. And yet he preached it. And the power of God was so great that people believed it. And they left the pagan temples. And they came to Christ, and they trusted him, and they believed him. And God took these hostile persons, as Paul was. How would Paul know that? Read Acts chapter 9. He was full of anger, blasphemy, ready to breathe threats against the disciples of the Lord. And God apprehended him. And he was soon a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so... Dear ones, there's nothing more powerful than the word of God. And what we'll find out, and I'll share this next week, everyone he calls, he gifts, he equips, and he uses. Whatever it may look like to the world out there. All scripture inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness. So the man of God may be equipped for every good work. We do not need human wisdom. God who saves us is the God who will sanctify us. Yes, we have earthen vessels. Yes, we fail. There's something wrong, 
with everyone in some regard, but God creates the body so that we need one another and we're going to serve him. And I don't believe that anyone would accurately proclaim the gospel, preach Christ, teach the truth about Christ, and stay in the scripture, don't go beyond what's written, will be rebuked for having done so when the Lord returns. But what about everything else out there? All you have to do, drive up and down the street and look at church buildings and the signage. Are we going to find those things that are glorified by what is called church pleasing to God? No. No. Because church isn't the world. Church isn't a building. It's a people who are redeemed from sin and brought into the greatest place you could be, part of the promises, the people, the covenants with an eternal hope. Here's another one. What is only temporal is always insufficient. We are not heading toward paradise. We're heading toward judgment. But those who know Christ are those who will be rewarded. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. This is, by the way, imperative. It's a command. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing in kingdom, Preach the word. Preach the word. Look at that. It's a command. Que Russo, aorist active imperative. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Well, there's more on the next slide. Think about this. Preach the word. It's a command from God. So at least I know that's the correct thing to do. Someone came when we, way back, decades ago, a different group I was with, bad neighborhood, bad situation, not enough people, not enough money, crumbling building, not enough of everything. And the message was, you need to have a vision for why you're here on this corner. Well, I couldn't think of a vision other than trying to survive. And so there was an equivocation. Vision was being used in a business sense rather than in a biblical one. In the Bible, the vision was given to the, those who wrote Scripture. I know why I am anywhere to preach Christ and to care for God's people. And how big or small or what it looks like, at least we know he has told us preach the word. Be ready. Now, look at in-season, out-of-season. What does that mean? Well, there's two prefixes in the Greek. Greek, You, E-U, which is generally euphemism. It means good, portrayed as good. So if it's a favorable season, preach the word. And then the next has an alpha privative on the same word, okay, which would mean... uh, to the, the season is kairos, which is qualitative time. Here's the bottom line. There's no bad time to preach the word. 
There's no bad time to share the gospel. There's no bad time to teach the body of Christ the whole counsel of God. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. This is a solemn charge. Preach the word and be ready. Stand at the Greek says, literally, stand at the ready. In military terms, they say, stand at the ready. Something's going to happen. Be ready. Be ready. How will you be ready to preach the word? By being diligent to study, to care about what God said, to have the truth, to be equipped to care, and to do something that will be eternal. Be at the ready. There's three more imperatives here in this verse. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. The first one is prove the opponents in the wrong. And there were many. You can read about it in Acts. Second, rebuke. Um, by the way, second one, reprove, rebuke. Rebuke is the same word used, and I want to preach the gospel to you, the same word used at the crucifixion. Jesus is crucified, and there's two criminals. One repented while they were hanging there. The other was hurling abuse. Save yourself. If if you're really who you claim to be, save us. Come on, show us. Come off the cross. Save us from this. Yeah, save us from this so we can die for something else later and still be lost. But the other one rebuked the one who was mocking Jesus. Why? The same word is used here, rebuke. He rebuked the other guy when he repented that day while he was hanging there. He said, do you not fear God? He said to Jesus, he said, we're getting what we deserve. He admitted his sin. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What kind of faith did that criminal on the cross have that he believed that there would be a kingdom, that even though Jesus was dying there, the kingdom would only come to pass if he stayed on the cross and died for the sins. And that was God's plan. So he believed that that was true. The other one says, save us now, that's enough for us. Wow, he rebuked. So it doesn't necessarily have to be mean and nasty, but it's helping preserve people from destruction. The third imperative, parakaleo, word used, by the way, of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, can mean, depending on the context, comfort, exhort, encourage, in this case, all of the above for the people of God. You should be comforted. If your family hates you because you became a Christian, be comforted in the fact that this has gone on as long as there have been Christians. The truth, God cannot lie. He's told us. He's given us the gift. Some will hear. Last slide. Four. Now, this is really interesting, and I cited this so many times in seminary when they were telling us we needed to join the church growth movement by having um, human wisdom. And I said, well, uh, I can't do that. I have to preach the word. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Four. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Stop right there. Do a marketing survey and find out how many people want sound doctrine up and down religious consumers. Zero. 
But what if God redeems and we're born of God and the Holy Spirit who inspired the scripture indwells us and we're hungry for the truth. And we gather together and what we're here here is a business scheme on how to have a bigger everything. Now, that's not sound doctrine. The hunger for sound doctrine comes when God converts people. So what will happen? They wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. You know how bad it is when the lust, that word is lust, epithumia, the lust of human beings determine the message of the church? Do you think that's a good idea? The lust of men determine what the church is willing to preach. It's abominable. And will turn away their ears from the truth, turn aside to muthos, myths, fables. But Jesus Christ didn't come so that we believe a fable. He is the very creator of the universe, the triune God of the Bible. The promised Jewish Messiah is the one who created everything out of nothing. He, the virgin-born Son of God, came into our world, did many mighty deeds to prove who he was, predicted his own death and burial and resurrection. He shed his blood once for all to pay for sins, the just for the unjust, and ascended to heaven and told us as he sent forth the apostles to preach the gospel. And so that's who he is. What does he say to us? Repent and believe the gospel. Turn to Christ. Believe the gospel. Only the blood of the sinless one, God the Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, can wash away your guilt and sin. He gives us forgiveness of sins, the word for forgiveness, release, and the promise of eternal life. That's the gospel. Today, if, if you've heard the word of God and it has pierced to your heart, believe on Christ. Don't believe in religion. Believe on Christ. Turn to him. Worldly wisdom, human ability, myths, be they spiritual or philosophical, are popular with religion consumers, but are antithetical to the truth of the gospel. Christ crucified. Dear ones, the reason we love one another is because our Savior accepted us. We had nothing to offer him. He had everything for us. I love you, and I thank you that you're willing to hear the truth of the word of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for allowing us to look into things that we would never thought of and give us boldness to preach the word and to care for each other and help each other through the difficulties we all face. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.